Good morning, Mosaic. How's it going? For those of you who have never met me, my name is Jeff Miller. I, I'm a volunteer staff here at uh, Mosaic. Um, during the week, um, I work as the religious coordinator, kind of like a chaplain, over at the Lincoln Correctional Center, which you may have heard about um, this week. Unfortunately, I think we were one of the most famous uh, prisons in the country <laughs> this week for all the wrong reasons. Um, but yeah, I promise I didn't let them out. <laughs> All right, so what do, we, what do we come up with? What are some of those things? Who's got a good one? What do you, what do you hate it when other people do it, uh, but you tend to do it yourself? What's, what are some of the good ones? Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right out of the box. <laughs> what else? Yeah. Yeah, you tend to go right to the worst-case scenario, but it annoys you. What's that? Sure. Yeah. What else? Any other good ones? Okay. Yeah, judging people. Absolutely. Well, so I've got. I think I've probably got a lot of these. Um, I think there are a lot of things that I that I do that it's it's fine when I do it, but I hate it when other people do it. Uh, one of them that comes right to my mind um, yeah, is is talking at the movies. I know, I, I heard it uh, from out there. <laughs> there. Anybody with me? Do you, you hate it when people talk in the movies? That's a big pet peeve. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I cannot stand it when other people talk at the movies, whether it's people I'm with, people around me. You know, I, I can't stand it. It's a huge pet peeve of mine. But, you know, if, if, if I see something in a movie and, and I've got a clever comment that comes to mind, you know, something... Something that seems worthwhile to say. I, will, I might whisper it to the person right next to me in a very quiet voice. It's been known to happen. All right, so would anybody say that I should not go to the movies with you? Any, any movie talkers in here? Nobody. Well, good, because, oh, okay, we got, we got a couple. Thank you for your vulnerability, but you guys are the worst. Yeah. Yeah, can't stand movie talkers. This is actually the reason why... I refuse to go to the movies anymore with my brother, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan and Jonathan, he's not a movie talker, uh, but there, he actually hates it even worse than I do. Uh, he gets so upset whenever anybody talks in the movies, but just for whatever reason, he just has really bad luck at movies. He's, he's like a movie talker bug lamp. You know, if, if you go to the movies with Jonathan, you can be sure there is going to be somebody sitting right behind us. Um, it's going to be talking through the whole thing. Ruined Minority Report for me, by the way. It's, that was like 10 years ago, and I'm still angry about it. So, and I think the worst, the worst thing that somebody can do along these lines, you know, is not just talking at the movies, but like talking during like a really critical and suspenseful, you know, high-tension part of the movie. That's, that's even worse than regular talking at the movies. You know, it, yeah, I remember there was this one occasion at my college uh, back, you know, probably about 11 or 12 years ago. Uh, now, we were doing a screening of the movie Signs. Anybody seen the movie Signs? I'm not Shyamalan. Yeah, it's a good one. Oh, boy. I don't need to see the movie Signs. It's one of my favorites. Um, you know, so it's, you know, if you remember back in the day, back when M. Night Shyamalan was capable of making good movies, one of, one of the things he was really gifted at was building suspense, building tension, you know, having, 
having these high points of tension in his movies. And for whatever reason, there were these idiot clowns in, in the screening um, there with us who just decided to make a game that night out of yelling at the screen every time we were in a moment of high tension. And just, it killed the movie for me. You know, it, it ruined the entire night, the whole experience. It was, it, it was just totally blown. Now, it's not always that overt and irritating, uh, but I feel like that's just kind of one example that I notice about how, as a society, a lot of times we tend, you know, to want to break up the tension. You know, we don't like to sit with high intensity for more than a few seconds. If something weighty is going on, a lot of times we feel the need to kind of break up the awkwardness and the uncomfortableness with a funny comment or by changing the subject or just disengaging altogether. And, you know, if, if you're like me, one of, the, one of the sorts of times where that's even more than usually the case is at a time when we're experiencing a lot of grief or a lot of tragedy. And we've been going through a time like that this week in our culture here with the Orlando shootings last weekend, haven't we? We've been going through a time of some significant grief and, and just finding ourselves sitting with some tension together. 49 people dead and, uh, what is it, 53 more seriously injured. Uh, it's it's almost so much that it's hard to process. For myself, last weekend I was, uh, I actually uh, came down uh, with a bit of a stomach bug and I had a high fever, so I was a little bit out of it all weekend. I, I think at one point my wife Betsy mentioned to me that there was a shooting in Orlando, but I was kind of out of it, so I, I didn't really, you know, I, I didn't really think much of it. And so it's really only been in these last couple of days here that I've come to terms and kind of started to process what happened um, and started to realize the magnitude of what went on. And when something like that happens around us, you know, we all, we all tend to react in some different ways. Some of us tend to lash out with anger and defensiveness and want to jump right uh, into some kind of action. And, you know, some of us uh, struggle with letting the despair in and getting emotionally crippled uh, by our own despair. And some of us are just so cynical um, that we just kind of look at it and say, well, that's the way the world is now, and that's the way the world is always going to be, and there's nothing much that we can do about it. Uh, and I think, you know, for myself, the way I usually deal with it is I say, I've got too much on my mind right now. I can't really let this in. I can't really process this at all. So I just let Netflix roll for another few hours, uh, you know, and uh, binge on some new girl or something, or something more manly than that. Forget I said new girl. Breaking bad, you know, something, something better. So if you've been with us for over these last couple of months here at Mosaic, you know that we are on a journey together through the book of the Psalms. And the Psalms um, is a book of poetry right in the middle of our Bible. And we've been calling this series The Journey of the Soul. And as I understand it, the reason we've been calling it The Journey of the Soul is because as we look through the book of the Psalms, what we encounter is poetry that explores 
uh, people's responses to all the highs and lows of life, all the really low emotions like doubt and anger and shame, and some of the high emotions, the joy, the elation, the celebration. Um, It's kind of a journey through all of those things. And there are also poems in the book of Psalms uh, written by people who are experiencing tremendous grief as they sat and tried to process through what was going on in the world around them. And we even have some poems uh, in the book of the Psalms uh, when, that are written by people who had weeks in some ways not, not dissimilar to the week that we just had uh, when we've witnessed armed men going into uh, populated areas and slaughtering innocent people. And we're going to look at one of those Psalms uh, today, Psalm 10. It's a Psalm that's written by David. We really don't know anything much about the context of Psalm 10 or what exactly was going on, what prompted David to write this, what kind of events were taking place, uh, other than to say that it's clear um, that he had just witnessed some sort of injustice, some sort of you know, mass sadness. And within it, David engages with the spiritual practice that we call lament. Now, when I say that word lament, what, what comes to your mind? What's the mental image uh, with lament? What do, you, what, do you, what do you associate with lament? Yeah, weeping, crying. Um, and, you know, of course, lament, I think it's probably fair to say for that reason, because we think of it that way, it's probably not anybody's favorite spiritual practice, either to engage with or to talk about, and, you know, particularly, you know, for, um, you know, us men, you know, are we still live in a culture where we're socialized and we are enculturated to see grief and emotions like grief, especially in a public forum as, as weakness, um, and we're still told that we shouldn't uh, display weakness, certainly not in a public forum, but lament is a critically important facet of our spiritual life for the Lord. And before we get too much in to Psalm 10 in particular, I just want to say I know that there might be some of us here today uh, who really aren't bought in to Jesus and to what the Bible has to say. I understand that. That's okay um, here. But I think we can all agree, no matter where we come uh, from spiritually this morning, um, that this area of life, grief, and how we deal with tragedy, both in society and tragedy personally, at a, in, a, in a small way in our lives, it's critical that we learn to be healthy about how we deal with grief, because we see all around us what happens when people deal with grief in unhealthy and destructive ways. We can allow our grief to turn into rage, and that's when we start to respond to hate with hate, and we start to perpetuate these cycles uh, that, that brought us here in the first place. And we see what happens when people try to deal with uh, grief just you know, through trying to numb it through things like drugs and alcohol or Netflix uh, for me and how, how it makes us unengaged with our world. So it's critically important that we learn how to deal with our grief in a healthy way. And even if 
Jesus and church really aren't your things. I hope you'll keep an open mind to the idea that this ancient wisdom and this old poem might be able to lead us in a direction that helps us to deal with our grief in a healthy way. So let's have a look at the psalm. Uh, psalm, psalm 10, verse 1, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? When anybody say, have you, has anybody here ever prayed anything like that prayer right there, where you ask a question like that one? Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Where, where are you? What hap- where were you when this thing happened? What were you doing? Why, why didn't you do anything about this? Where were you when this was going on? I guarantee there are people who were affected by the Orlando shooting last week who have been asking this question this week. And I think for most of us, at some point in our lives, this is a question that we're going to find ourselves asking. Lord, why weren't you engaged in what was going on? In my life, where were you when this was happening? Why did you allow these things to happen? And coming from a writer of scripture, somebody like David, that's kind of a surprising question, isn't it? It's it's surprising because you know, for for most of us, we've grown up believing, you know, especially those of us who grew up in a religious context, believing that doubt is a form of weakness, maybe, maybe even doubt is a sin, and it's something that we need to avoid at all costs. And so the question feels a little bit scandalous. It feels accusatory to God. To ask him where he was, it feels like we're making an accusation against God. And that's, so that's why lament, lament requires great vulnerability from us. For us to bear our souls to this extent the way that David does here requires great vulnerability. It requires us to be honest about our feelings at the very core of who we are. So that's why it takes courage to lament, you know, to have the courage to ask this question and really grapple with it, to really sit with it for a while. You know, it puts us in an extremely vulnerable place spiritually and emotionally. Let's proceed through Psalm 10. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me, and he swears no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. 
Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortars will never again strike terror. Now, this is just kind of a happy coincidence. Uh, I didn't really plan it this way, but I I just want to highlight for a moment, uh, you know, you probably noticed David a couple of times in there mentions the fatherless um, in there. And of course, as Mike mentioned, we're here today on Father's Day, and I know that Father's Day is tough for some people, either because uh, your dad is no longer with us or for just whatever reason, given the circumstances of your relationship, you feel fatherless. And I love the image that David gives us here as God, as the one who defends the fatherless. God is the one who supports and helps the fatherless. So that's just something that you know, I notice. I think it is worth pointing out on today of all days. But as, as we look at Psalm 10, as David runs down that list of things that evil men do as he calls upon God for protection and deliverance. You know, as we look at that, I think at first it strikes us as something fairly straightforward. David complains about what's going on in the world and asks God to make a change in it. You know, normally when we look at a passage of Scripture, uh, we, we try to ask questions as we try to kind of get to the meaning of it. We ask questions like, what does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about humanity? What, is, what does this tell us that God wants from me? And all of those are excellent questions. I've, I've taught people to ask those questions about Scripture uh, before. But none of those questions really lead us to an understanding of exactly what's going on here. Because in order to understand and fully grasp the weight of what David is doing here in Psalm 10, we have to understand the role that lament played in the culture of Israel. And we have to see how it functioned for them in their spiritual practice. And that is something that takes us all the way back to the beginning of Israel's history and their birth of a nation and their exodus from Egypt. So if you remember the story of the exodus when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. They had been enslaved. Does anybody remember how long were they enslaved in Egypt? Anybody remember or have a guess? 400 years, that's right. 400 years. That's, that's a really long time for an entire nation of people, for an entire culture to be subjugated in slavery. 400 years, so roughly... You know, that's a little bit longer than the amount of time that's passed since the pilgrims landed at Plymouth to today. You know, so the equivalent from that time till now, that's how long the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And I think what we have trouble understanding from our modern perspective is that it takes a lot in order for that to happen. It takes a lot for 
a tyrant to be able to keep people enslaved for that long. In order for that to happen, uh, in, order for, in order for a nation or a tyrant to be able to keep people enslaved for that long, they have to have a carefully crafted and meticulously maintained narrative that this is how the world is supposed to work. In the case of Egypt, the way this narrative worked was he said, our gods are mightier than your gods, and that's why you're here. And because you know, our gods are mightier than your gods, this is the way it's supposed to be. We are your masters, and that's the way that the world works. And that, you know, whips and chains, you know, those only work for so long and so well. But if you can get a group of people to believe and accept the idea that you oppressing them is the right thing to, to be happening, if you can convince a group of people this is the natural order of things, well, then whips and chains are hardly even necessary anymore. They just become a matter of reinforcement. And that's where Israel found themselves after 400 years. And the way that we can tell that that's where Israel found themselves is, you know, if we fast forward a little bit, after the people of Israel have been freed from their slavery in Egypt, once they get out into the desert and are heading for the promised land, the moment they get hungry, what do they say? They say, oh, if only we hadn't left Egypt, if only we hadn't upset the way things were supposed to be. We were taken such good care of in Egypt. We were fed so well in Egypt. You know, so we can tell that this insidious power narrative of Egypt had at least to some extent taken root in the people of Israel's minds. But when we go back to the beginning of the story, to the Exodus story, we see something amazing happen that interrupts this narrative that Pharaoh and the people of Egypt were pushing on them. We see when we go to Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So now... After 400 years of slavery, this movement begins among the people of Israel, and they cry out. They say, this is not right. This is not what the world is meant to be. And what do we begin to see happening immediately after that in verses 24 and 25? God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. That, does that seem a little odd to you? After 400 years of slavery, people cry out, and all of a sudden God hears and becomes concerned for them. Does that, does that seem strange to anybody in here? What, what just happened there? I, I'll tell you what, what I, I think. I don't think that God just became aware of their slavery when he heard the people crying out. I don't think that God just started caring about their slavery. But for whatever reason, when the people of Israel tell their story, when they, when they see the account of the Exodus 
and how it plays out, it begins with this moment. It begins with crying out. It begins with people getting together and saying what is going on in the world is not right. It all starts with people lamenting the way that they see the world. And this is really exactly what we see in Psalm 10 as well. Uh, You know, like I said, we don't really know what was going on uh, for David. We don't know exactly what events prompted David to write Psalm chapter 10, you know, what injustice he was seeing, what events, you know, what, who these people were, these arrogant men um, who were oppressing the poor around him. But when we take a look at Psalm chapter 10, you know, I ask you, you know, who does it seem like David's perspective is identifying with, the powerful or the powerless? The powerless, right? So that tells me this is not King David writing, this psalm. This is, not, this is not David during his time as a king. This is from David at a time when he felt powerless. Maybe possibly, you know, during his time as a fugitive from King Saul. You know, at a time when the monarchy and all of its resources were aligned against him, actively hunting him down and trying to take his life. And the narrative that the powerful in Israel relied on to stay in power, even though this is centuries after Egypt, you know, and, and in a different, a different part of the Middle East, you know, the narrative was substantially the same. It really never changes. The narrative that the powerful use to stay powerful really never changes, and that narrative is the narrative that this is how the world is meant to be. The powerful are powerful because that's how God wants it to be. And the, power, you know, and, to, and the powerless are powerless because that's how God wants it to be. And if you upset that status quo, then you're messing with the natural order of things that God has set up. Really, that narrative hasn't changed throughout history. That's still something that we hear and we see. We see it in our own history as a people. We see it you know, throughout slavery and Jim Crow and segregation. You know, if you notice the arguments that people use to justify those things throughout our history, we see that it always has something of a religious bent to it. It's always people saying, this is how God has designed it to be. And so to speak out against that narrative is a deeply courageous thing. To say, no, this isn't right. To speak up and say, this is not how God has designed the world to be is a deeply courageous and sometimes very dangerous thing. And so for David to speak up over against the powerful to speak on behalf of the powerless, to invoke God as the defender of the powerless, that, that was a deeply scandalous thing to do and a scary and courageous thing to do. It's an assault on the divine rights of kings. It's, it makes me think of a Russian novelist, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote against the Soviet Union, exposing the horrors of them that he saw there. It reminds me of students sitting down in Tiananmen Square. It makes me think 
of Rosa Parks keeping her seat on the bus. All of those things are ways of saying that what is going on in the world around me, this is not right. This is not how the world should be, over and against the prevailing narratives of the time. And so in Hebrew thought, there's something really powerful about lament. Lament is where changing the world starts. It's the seed of all change. It's an act of rebellion against that narrative. It's an act of rebellion against apathy and against despair and against cynicism because where apathy says that it's too much work to try to change the way things are and where despair says that the darkness is too great and, and too powerful and too strong for us to rise against it and where cynicism says this is the way the world is and this is the way the world is always going to be and who do you think you are? to try to speak against it or act against it. Lament doesn't deny the darkness in the world, but it looks full on in the face of the darkness surrounding us and says, yes, things are awful, and yes, the world isn't what it's meant to be right now, but there is hope. There is hope out there. And what is hope? Exactly. I, I guess the way I understand hope is that it's the steadfast belief that today doesn't have to be the way yesterday was. And if we screw up today, then we can wake up tomorrow and try again, and tomorrow doesn't have to be the way that today and yesterday were. It's the belief that the forces that have made the world the way that it is right now, we don't have to let them write the end of the story. And I do believe that there are forces in the world that look at something like Orlando and say, you know, and want us to believe that the only way to respond to hate and violence is with more hate and violence. I believe that there are forces in the world that want us to believe that life is a zero-sum game, and if we're going to win and prosper, then other people have to lose and suffer. And I believe there are people of genuine goodwill who believe that, and I believe there are also forces in the world that have a vested interest in people buying in to those narratives. Now, we talk about hope Obviously, for David and for those of us who call Jesus our Lord, that hope has a very particular focus. We have hope in the belief that there is a God who is actively working in the world around us, restoring it and making all things new. But for those of us here on this side of history, those of us you know, who come after Jesus and follow him and call him our Lord, there's a new twist to hope. And that twist is that Jesus has called us to be a part of how God is working in the world around us. God has called us to be a part of the restoration. He's called us to be a part of making all things new. So even as we lament, even as we call out, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, O God, we don't really have the option of just leaving it, leaving it there, leaving it at that. We've been called, you know, if we call Jesus our Lord, we've been called to be a part 
of what he's doing. And so lament becomes more than just declaring that the world is not as it should be. Lament becomes a call to action for us. And, you know, in addition to that, you know, if we believe that we are the body of Christ, you know, if we understand ourselves to have the Spirit in us, if we believe that we're the hands and feet of Jesus in this world, then the question is no longer just, where were you, God, when things like Orlando happened? The question becomes, where were we? I'll say that again. If we believe that we are the body of Christ, and if we believe that we are his hands and feet in this world, then the question is never just, where were you, God? The question becomes, where were we? And so if we lament for what happened in Orlando, and we must lament for what happened there and for things like that, you know, that calls upon us to ask that question, where were we uh, when things like this happened in the world? Now, don't get me wrong. Of course, we're not all-powerful And, of course, we cannot prevent violent and senseless rampages like this from happening all the time. But we have to ask ourselves the question, are we promoting the way of peace in our community? Are we promoting the gospel of love to the people around us, to the LGBTQ community and to the Muslim community? Are we communicating the message unequivocally that God loves them unconditionally and deeply. We saw in Psalm 10 when David engaged in lament, he said that the victims commit themselves to the Lord. And so we asked the question, would the people affected by the tragedy in Orlando, would they even dream of approaching us and thinking that we're going to be safe people for them to reach out to? or something like this. And if we can't answer those questions with yes, then we know what action that we're called to when something like Orlando happens. So we're going to do things a little bit differently today. We're going to take some time together as a community to engage in this spiritual practice of lament. We're just going to take a few minutes in silence and practice this, you know, just right where you are on your own. Take a few minutes before the Lord and bury your soul before them about the things that you see in the world that aren't right, that aren't what they're supposed to be, you know, and have the vulnerability before the Lord to name them, to say them. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that there are moments when we have to sit, even in uncomfortable silence, and feel the magnitude of what's going on in the world around us, and to grieve and to declare that it is not right, to declare that the narratives that we live with around us, you know, about who deserves your grace and your favor and who doesn't, you know, are false. Give us the courage to do that, we pray.